Hello, I'm Anthony Santa. Hello, I'm Dr. Michael Smith. And this is Fusion Health Radio, Episode 13, Emotional Intelligence and Traditional Chinese Medicine. Welcome to Fusion Health Radio, your source for inspiration, information, and insight on what it really takes and what really matters on your journey to abundant health. Hello and welcome back to Fusion Health Radio. This is episode 13, uh, talking today with Dr. Michael Smith about emotional intelligence and traditional Chinese medicine. If you're new to Fusion Health Radio, welcome. If you're coming back for episode 13 because you just can't get enough, uh, you're in for a treat. This is a talk that I heard Michael give uh, last year during his spring health cleanse and uh, something that I thought would make for a great a uh, little snippet of information for people to get at another date. And uh, Michael dropped this idea in front of me today and said, hey, how about I talk about the emotional intelligence thing? And I said, excellent idea. So uh, before we get too far into what we're talking about today, uh, let's just give people a quick recap. Uh, last episode, we talked about uh, bringing traditional Chinese medicine into the 21st century. Uh, can you give us the, the short notes on that? Yeah, so the short notes would be that um, any system of medicine, Chinese medicine, Western medicine, Ayurvedic medicine, uh, has the opportunity to um, interact with our patients in a way that's a bit sneaky because speaking in Latin, speaking in Chinese, or using referential terminology, uh, I imagine it's the same as Ayurveda, uh, can leave people uh, not really sure what all that means. So uh, we just talked about um, the importance of making sure people understand what their diagnosis is. If you're trying to give it to them in Latin or Chinese or, you know, in, in some kind of terminology, they may not know because then they're going to be more empowered, um, and more aligned with the reason why you're asking them to change their diet or their exercise or their sleep or why you're poking them in the, you know, noggin or the butt with little needles or why, uh, they're no longer allowed to have popcorn and stuff. And, and it was basically because if people attach uh, too much um, poignancy or abstract power to another language, they may be kind of uh, what's called in, in a place of referential thinking. They're just hoping that the terminology is super cool, super wise, and then somehow beyond what science can figure out. And the other danger is someone gives you a diagnosis in another language and you walk home, you know, with this weird kind of dissociative haze of hoping that these people know what they're talking about. And you've got your bag of, you know, witches brew and some, you know, little bruise from where they poked you with a needle and you're going like, I have no idea what's going on or why, but I really hope this does something for me. So as a clinician who teaches clinicians, it's just sort of become a, I don't know, a thing of ethical responsibility to make sure that people I train can explain Chinese medicine terminology with science. Or take Western medicine Latin and tell people what that actually means, you know, in, in the sense of down here on the ground, usable uh, information. Everyday language. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if you do tune into that podcast, uh, you'll hear Michael talk with a whole bunch of 25 cent words. <laughs> he will talk at length about why um, learning something about your health uh, can be confusing and baffling and what people do with that or another approach, uh, which is, the, I guess, the more comprehensive uh, approach that uh, Michael prescribes, uh, which is actually speaking uh, not in tongues, but in plain English. <laughs> yeah, basically, if you don't understand the what, how, and why, you're, you're, you're running on, you know, faith or fear. 
Um, if you do understand the what, how, and why, then you're basically, you know, on your health team, you know, as kind of the captain of the, the team, you know, you've been given your directions by the coach. Now it's to get out there on the field and start making things happen because you're confident, you know, you know, A plus B equals C. I'm going to get to C you now because I get it. Because if you don't get it, you're probably just going to be more nervous. Yeah. And all of a sudden you actually have some, uh, I can speak from personal experience, uh, being uh, treated in that way where I was actually delivered information in plain English. All of a sudden it felt very empowering. Mm -hmm. you know? I didn't say this in the last podcast, but it just occurred to me right now that I think one of the reasons why it's an ethical thing for me is I've seen lots and lots of clinicians from many, many different sort of streams of medicine use their abstract referential terminology to keep people and in a way kind of like, um, you know, there's, you're in a restaurant and there's a place in the restaurant everybody's allowed to go. And there's the special, you know, place where only the people with the special card can go. And it keeps people spending money, getting treatments, buying supplements, but they're clearly like one tier down from what's really going on. And as long as the, the doctor or the witch doctor or the guru or the snake oil salesman <laughs> can keep people in that sort of, oh, wow, you're up there and you know stuff and I'm down here and I just do what I'm told. I mean, there's lots of people who just keep people spending thousands of dollars on protocols that may or may not be really, really accurate to that person, but they're just well-known and they've got a fancy name and everyone's happy to just be in the restaurant at all. Hmm. Yeah. So it, uh, it definitely is a way of, um, uh, leveling the playing field, you know, between, um, and again, as I experienced it, I don't want this uh, podcast to be all about uh, me and my health journey, but it's, it's very pertinent to the conversation we had last week where it totally leveled the playing field. I felt like I could look you in the eye and understand what you're talking about as opposed to walking out, scratching my head going, what the heck did that guy in the white coat just tell me? I have no freaking idea. Mm. Yeah. So uh, a very uh, healthful uh, 21st century approach uh, to medicine, which brings us to whatever it is we're talking about today, uh, emotional intelligence and traditional Chinese medicine. The, the conversation that Michael gave during this spring health cleanse uh, last year um, I keep saying conversation because I guess that's what I am in with you. So it was, it was a talk, a thing that you talked about, um, was very uh, profound to me because it, it almost um, negated, if I remember it right, it almost negated everything that you teach in terms of medicine and all of a sudden brought it back to uh, really why it is you are you and why you should be healthy. I don't know if that's a good synopsis or not. Well, I mean, it, it, it takes us from sentiment to actual feeling to actual instinct instead of being afraid that your sentiments are eventually going to become pathological enough to cause you harm. Hmm. Okay. Well, um, instead of me sort of guessing and trying to remember what that conversation is, why don't you just start from the beginning and, and let our listener know what, what, what that idea is about around emotional intelligence. Well, I mean, I think just the term emotional intelligence invites us to recognize that, um, you know, emotions are kind of wild, that they come and go, they have a life of their own, they're sometimes hard to get in touch with, sometimes they're relentlessly uh, invasive in the sense that, you know, pay attention to me now, it's all about me, because <laughs> feelings can do that. But the idea that there's some kind of intelligence or rational way to um, be in a response to maybe a, an overwhelming amount of emotion around something. And I just want to be clear that it's not rational thinking is always going to get you into a better state emotionally. That's not really what's going to happen. But for me, it brings up this really interesting opportunity uh, around awareness. And uh, usually this works better with a chalkboard or something. So 
do my best with, I don't know, weird hand gestures and you can translate them if you can. I'll, I'll do the color commentary. <laughs> there you go. And Michael's waving his hand to the left <laughs> and he's pointing at his nose. <laughs> yeah. Looks like he's trying to land a plane. <laughs> anyway, so let's say there's your mental experience in the sense of thought and ideation and self-talk, be it positive or negative. And then there's, you know, just raw emotion. And lots of things can change that, you know, triggers the past, you know, new opportunities. And then there's the physical sense of your body. We call your somatic self or your postural self. You know, down here is kind of the, the meat bones and, you know, nerves and muscles and breath and stuff. And then there's what you might call your consciousness or your spiritual opportunities. Now, if you're having a particularly um, messy emotional day and they happen, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but they seem to happen. And you try and, you know, get in there with your emotional self to try and resolve things. Uh, I'd say you're at maybe a 20% opportunity, right? Because the emotions want your attention and they're wild and unruly and, you know, uh, not very rational. So sometimes by having a, a rational skill set, to help you identify and pry apart and move into consciously each of your feelings as they're you know, getting your attention. Now you're using your in intellect or rational mind to deal with your emotional self. So sometimes you're in a place mentally, you know, and again, trying to think of these four distinct uh, places you can be too much involved in or invested in. So you're having a day where you've got a lot to figure out. And you're rationally busy, busy, busy trying to solve problems, make lists, you know, hire people, fire people, borrow money, spend money, or whatever you're doing. But you're you're really quite involved in in the, the mental, the math, the I don't know, writing good ad copy, whatever you're up to with your head. But it's not a very good day for you. You're not focusing, or your emotions are crowding you uh, in a way that's making it hard to be clear with your mind. And then sometimes what's best to do is to go and get some physical exercise, movement, stretch, you know, work on other things so that as a body, you're more happy to be present in the world. And then all of a sudden, emotionally, you're more present in the world and you can be rationally more effective. Right. You know, and I guess basically the point is that wherever you're in the most trouble, you need to access something next to it. So if it's emotion, I can move to that physically and somatically, or I can look at that rationally. If I'm rationally freaking out emotionally, I'm probably going to be a little bit wound up, but physically I have some great opportunities to start to change my, my experience and my behavior. Uh, I think when it comes to the spiritual opportunity, that depends on your practice, your confidence, um, you know, how many years you've been involved in whatever you do. And at the same time, that opportunity is sort of implicitly not completely up to you because if there is, you know, other things around the universe that can support us as spiritual beings, you know, we'd be asking for some kind of request to help on a spiritual level to maybe help us with a physical ailment or a, an emotional overwhelm or a time of, you know, uh, intellectual or rational disarray or confusion and stuff. So again, just, just if I, you know, moving my hands around the air going, you've got four different pools and sometimes if one pool is really, really messy and muddy, you can only really resolve it by spending a lot of time really, uh, focusing on a, a different pool, right? And, and I think that's a really valuable kind of insight to have because, you know, if we're having an emotionally heavy day and we try to go in there and emotionally, you know, uh, move things around that may go well and we may spend the entire day on the floor crying and that might be the best thing for us too but that we do have these distinct attributes and they, they cooperate better when they work together 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I liked how um, how you talk about how simple it is. I mean, in my mind, you know, if you've got things, I don't know if this is a new idea or not, but if if I've got things on my mind and I'm kind of befuddled and then I feel a whole bunch of anxiety around that, you know, going for a walk to, you know, blow the stink off, that's an expression that I've heard from uh, my girlfriend right. that that her mom gave to her when she was a kid. I mean, there's there's certainly something to that. I don't know that she had the, the wherewithal to understand that that was actually a balancing thing, mm. uh, but it totally is. So when you when you talk about uh, the emotional intelligence, um, you're bringing in aspects of traditional Chinese medicine in all of that. Yeah. Um, can you go, I guess, more in depth with that? You're talking about the different pools. Mm. Um, what more can you say? So we've got the mental, the emotional, the physical, and the spiritual. So if we were to zero in on the emotional, um, if you're familiar with Chinese medicine, you know, you're going to see that little sort of witch's five-pointed star, and each one relates to the primary organ systems, uh, you know, your liver, your spleen, your kidneys, your heart, your lungs, and this comes into what they call the five elements and stuff. The classic introduction people get is that if you're a very angry person, that's because your liver is sick or being an angry person, you're going to make your liver sick. Okay. If you're a person prone to grief and melancholy and, you know, depression and stuff like that, it may be because your lungs are sick or weak in some way. And again, the other way of looking at it is if you're uh, grieving for too long or melancholic for too, you know, too in depth, you're going to damage your lungs. If you're to look at your spleen and stomach, pancreas, um, the pathological emotion is worry or anxiety, right? So it's kind of getting the, the, uh, the chicken or the egg in the sense that is, are you anxious and worrying because your spleen and stomach are out of balance or is your spleen and stomach being damaged by the amount of, of, you know, worry that you're experiencing, uh, with your liver, it's anger and with your kidneys, it's fear. You know, and I mean, that's pretty simple brush strokes, but, uh, sort of the, what I call the kindergarten or the introduction to Chinese medicine, sort of s- step one, you know, walk by the understanding is if your emotions are particularly unwell, they may produce specific emotions that help you identify an opportunity to take care of yourself. If your life is overwhelming emotionally, it may kind of pile up on a certain organ or organ system, creating imbalance, which now has to be resolved both emotionally, rationally, and physiologically. So the idea of emotional intelligence, it's almost like it's a um, a signal light pointing to specific ailments in the body. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the uh, the metaphor of dashboard lights. Mm-hmm. You know, beep, 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 pull over, pop the hood, what the heck am I doing? Because driving down the road for the, you know, another day might break something. Yeah. Well, I've had the experience of uh, the driver being overheated (laughs) and the car overheating at the same time, uh, which I, I mean, as a kid, I thought that was the funniest thing. It's like, hey, dad, look, you're pissed off and so is the car. Ha, ha, ha. I mean, that's a really interesting insight in the sense of on the radio trying to make sense to people because if you're driving down the road, you know, in in an excessively angry or excessively sad or excessively apprehensive way, and, you know, you're going to affect your vehicle differently. Maybe you're going to wear out the brakes, the gas, the, you know, the whatever, just, just based on the way that behavior is going to affect the physical vehicle. There you go. And maybe we should go back to bringing traditional Chinese medicine into the 21st century <laughs> with car analogies. <laughs> as far as the different uh, emotions go, they're uh, related to the different uh, organs mm-hmm. and vice versa. Yeah. Um, what else do we need to know? Well, like I said, and hopefully not 
being arrogant, that's the kindergarten version or the introduction to uh, an opportunity for people. Because most people really attach that. Oh, well, if I do too much bad, bad thing happened, dashboard, my, my car, oh no. So that, that in, inspires us to go, you know, this might be important. So the reason why that actually exists is that early on in the evolution of Taoism and Chinese medicine, uh, it was sort of inherent and understanding that if you don't actually kind of stretch or exercise certain instincts within your self as a being, then you're not actually growing uh, in a holistic sense and in, in, in a very balanced way. So we have these fundamental instincts or attributes that need to actually be, uh, you know, worked with. And if we don't, uh, a lack of that instinct will leave us without a certain skill set, which will inevitably get us into the more pathological emotion where the dashboard light's going to go on and maybe some damage is going to happen or uh, the other way goes. If you're sick in a certain way and your instinct around that organ isn't put in place, you're going to keep getting sick physically with that organ and eventually the pathological emotion will, you know, turn on its dashboard light and, you know, again, try and bring your attention more deep into resolving the problem. Mm -hmm. Well, okay. So then what are the instincts? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> so I usually start with anger because it's the easiest one, I think, for most people to just sort of wrap your mind around, around, you know, an obvious opportunity. So the instinct that relates to your liver, right, that's between normal behavior and actually becoming angry is the instinct of assertion. Okay. Right. Which is to have a goal, to have uh, a result in mind, and to actually create the completion of that goal. So the um, kind of image I usually use for people is from an experience I had a few years ago. So imagine that you want to go and build a yurt. And, you know, you go through all the trouble of building the platform and making all the jigs and buying all the material. And it, it's a lot of work, Anthony, to like drill all those holes and put all those little screws in to make the lattice for this thing. And, you know, you're getting far along the project. And then the city people show up and put a, you know, desist work, you know, stick around. Stop work order. Yeah. Yeah. You're doing this wrong. You're not allowed to do it. And, you know, my assertion is to build my yurt. But now there's something obstructing that assertion. And if I was an impatient person, and sometimes I am, I maybe feel more aggressive towards the, the city official and the rules and the injustice of, you know, interference around says, you know, why can't I do what I want? There's rules for everything. And that aggressive, aggressive sense of I need to build my yurt and you're in my way, you bleep, bleep, bleep person. Now I'm actually behaving with anger. And I mean, at that point, I'm either going to move more towards rage and smashing things with, you know, hammers, uh, or real big despondency and, and, and maybe even a disappointment to depression because I was, I had attached all of this, you know, magical potential to my, I don't know, carpet filled palace yurt with a little wood stove and, you know, side of it to hang out with my friends, you know, so it's all about going back to the assertion which in fact, what I ended up doing in that case was take everything apart, move it to a friend's land where there was, it was really hard to get to. So the city didn't even bother trying to find out what happens that far, far afield from what cities are supposed to do. And we, we built a yurt. So as long as you stay with your original assertion and, or if you're angry, try and identify what your deep assertion is that's actually making you angry. 
and you apply yourself to satisfying that assertion, you're no longer angry. Hmm. Well, and would you say that that's actually, um, I mean, the word expectations comes to mind. Mm-hmm. You know, my expectation is that I should be able to build this nifty little carpet palace <laughs> thing on my property. And, you know, Mr. Uh, inspector from the city comes by and tells me I can't do that. And I get cheesed off to the point where I either raise my voice or I go into a funk about the whole thing. Uh, but that's all based on the the expectation that something should be a certain way and it's not going my way. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, again, it's sort of, as they say, you know, flow with the Tao and stay fluid because the more rigid you get, the more you're going to get tired and resentful. Hmm. Okay. So that's one of the emotions or sorry, one of the instincts. Yeah. Um, what's the other one? Um, well, the next one that comes to my mind would be, um, the, the way we worry. I've heard this quote, um, and I arrogantly presumed I actually quoted this quote myself, but I've seen it from other places too. Um, anxiety and worry are a misuse of your imagination. Hmm. Because from a Chinese medicine point of view, the instinct that uh, comes with your spleen and stomach and pancreas in the sense of the, the physical organs, um, their primary instinctual attribute is imagination or imaging. Right. So, I mean, here I, there's a part of me that wants to build a yurt and it's kind of from the, the, the day I start breaking ground to the day it's finished. It's this project. But every day during that project, I'm sitting there in my mind with the associative uh, function we have around imaging or imagination, solving all kinds of problems using spatial reasoning, remembering where my tools are, that I've ordered enough stuff, that my friends are there to help me pick something up or whatever. So we have this amazing associative faculty as as human beings and to use imaging and imagination. Now, it's always worth saying that, you know, when you say imagination, people just think of kids playing and wasting our busy, busy time when you're, you know, on the clock. I mean, associative reasoning is probably three to four times faster at solving certain kind of problems than linear thinking. And the linear thinking is kind of more the assertion liver thing, whereas the connection uh, relation and, and kind of, you know, I don't know, I'm moving my hands around in space in the sense of sort of a, a spatial game like Tetris, you know, in three dimensions or something like that. Uh, when you're using your imagination, you're actually seeing yourself succeed at a certain project or process, and you might even make it more efficient. You know, you might, you know, just pick up on something that you're like, oh, wow, if I, you know, build a jig and drill all the holes the weekend before I put the thing together, it's going to be way less work for everybody. Or in my case, if I'm actually doing something, I'll see how I can do it better the next time. Yeah. And then there's that reflection too. Hmm. So, uh, again, imaging is this great opportunity, you know, and it's no accident that most of the places we hold consequential thinking or anxiety or, or things like that, um, it's no accident that we center them around our stomach because uh, that's where you get the butterflies in your stomach. That's our first trigger to uh, consequence or danger. So if we're in there trying to solve a puzzle in our head and we take that really seriously, we're going to feel the, the, the stress of the butterflies in your tummy. Well, as soon as you said uh, anxiety and worry, the word ulcer came to mind. Yeah, well, that's what we do. We just chump away at ourselves and, until we're... You know, until you have a hole in your gut. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, how, how much have you been thinking about this? This much. Yeah, and we have these, you know, subtle conversations. I'm so sick of this. You know, I've been gutted by this. This is eating me up inside. I mean, all these ways that we just confirm that 
you know, this is what I'm doing to myself because I'm not in instinct. I'm in, you know, I'm stuck in thinking or stuck in a feeling pattern. Hmm. Okay. So anger, anxiety, worry. Yeah. What's next? I think the next one I would go into would be with your kidneys. So they're related to like apprehension, dread, fear, um, you know, anxiety and things like that. And in a more like, oh my God, kind of way than just, you know, you're chewing your fingernails or you're actually pooping your pants, <laughs> you know, in terms of how, you know, consequential this is. So the instinctual attribute that the kidneys bring into being is a sort of felt sense, uh, feeling of being resourceful and ready. Right. Now, resourceful means, you know, you've had enough experience with yourself at problem solving on the fly that you have a natural sense of confidence, you know, not an arrogant confidence, but just like, wow, I've gotten through this many marriages or this many jobs or this many arguments or fist fights or I don't know, whatever. Tax forms. <laughs> Alien invasions, tax forms, <laughs> so that I can actually assume that um, I'm a resourceful person. And we're all resourceful-ish. You know, but it's to, to tap into how resourceful you actually feel when you feel resourceful and then to try and feel as ready as you can. You know, and I think this two images come to my mind. One is the, you know, martial arts situation where someone's, you know, two or three guys are going to try and bonk you over the head. The less time you spend trying to plan out what's going to happen next, the more you're actually instinctually ready to feel your agility, your resourcefulness. And a really profound sense of being ready because you have no idea what's going to happen. There's there's no way to rehearse an actual physical bit of conflict or violence. So uh, another example around the instinct of your kidneys around readiness would be imagine yourself uh, in the mountains if you're a mountaineering kind of person. You're going down a hill that's a scree slope or it's... Um, getting to be a bit more technical or it's just you know a lot of snow or slush or whatever you're inevitably going to bend your knees become very aware of the muscles of your pelvis and your center of gravity and every time you take a step you're going to be very careful right i mean there's the part that could move towards fear oh my god if the rock slips i'm going to become in an avalanche and crushed by boulders and eaten by bears or you're going to be kind of having fun in the sense of athleticism, sports, and dancing, because your knees are bent, you're in your more instinctual muscles and nerves. And everything that we do, well, many things that we do that are really fun, start with getting ready, bending your knees, getting into your, your uh, pelvis, your core muscles, and, and then getting ready to, like, for the ref referee to blow the whistle and the game starts for the music to drop the, the bass beat and everyone starts to, you know, dance or whatever. And, you know, if you stood there timid with your legs locked and, you know, all tight and nervous, you know, there's very few situations in which that's actually instinctually adaptable. You know, maybe a, a large predator is going to eat you and your friends and you, you pretended you were a tree and predators, you know, they, they see movement more than stillness. So they're going to run after your, running but least fit for it you know, or whatever you know so there are moments when kind of freezing up may be a good idea but for the most part in terms of the instinct around uh, your kidneys which can result in apprehension dread fear um to the point of potentially damaging you physiology ph physiologically because of the stress of that kind of chronic apprehension or fear um, just by coming into readiness by coming back into play by coming back into your uh, sense of confidence that you physically can actually like move in the world think in the world you know work in the world 
you're no longer as afraid or in fact you're actually having fun again the, the idea around apprehension that makes me just think of things that i do where uh, i've got a lot of experience i still get nervous but i'm confident that i can continue mm-hmm. um i mean podcasting might be one way to do it uh, with the, uh, the radio show that i do here in town uh, community radio do it every week two and a half three years now and every friday morning at eight o'clock when i turn those mics on live I've got a little bit of apprehension, like, oh my God, here I go. Uh, but I got a lot of confidence because I can actually talk in a confident voice and actually be that person because I've done it a bunch of times before, mm-hmm. right? So my kidneys are probably pretty healthy yep. on, fr- on Friday mornings anyway. Yep. <laughs> Get some extra sleep on Thursday. Yeah, well, absolutely. And you know what? On that, the, the, the times when I sleep like crap or I have a crappy sleep, the show, I'm not as connected to the individual that I'm speaking to. So... It's a spoken word program. Mm-hmm. You've been on my program before. Yeah. You know, I'm actually interviewing people from around town about current affairs, news, events, things that are going on. If I don't, if I if I'm not a hundred percent on my sleep, um, I'll be less confident in how I actually talk to them or approach them. Uh, my confidence around um, the technical things I need to do because I actually tech my own show. I have to do the volumes and play with the microphones and do whatever it takes in order to make sure that that live broadcast gets actually put out to air. Um, so if I don't sleep. How that really puts uh, my um, my guard up, you know, like all of a sudden that, that, that fear and anxiety and worry and apprehension become, you know, dominating. And my confidence is like this little small thing. It's like, where did it go? Come back. <laughs> and then there's, uh, I think uh, we can all acknowledge the feedback loop of the, the more apprehensive you are, the more afraid or nervous you are when you go to sleep. You're going to be sitting there worrying instead of imagining all of the ways you can, you know, think of that are going to get your, um, your aspirations and assertions met the next day. Hmm. So instead of staying in imagination and in readiness and in, you know, a confident kind of playful sense of assertion, we overextend ourselves around, um, the result and the consequence or the expectation. And that's the feedback loop. You know, we have a tossing, turning night of trying to figure something out that will only matter when you've got your tools in your hands. <laughs> Instead of saying, okay, best thing to, for me to do is get a deep sleep, grab onto my, you know, whatever my tools are, and get out there and start experimenting with what I imagined or even dreamed up in the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. Yeah, worry about um, something good happening instead of something bad. <laughs> or imagine it as kind of what the people call the manifestation thing. You know? Yeah, sure. Okay, so we've talked about uh, anger, um, anxiety, worry, apprehension. Um, and so that's uh, liver, mm-hmm. stomach, guts, kidneys with apprehension. Yeah. So um, kidneys are all about being ready and resourceful. Liver right. is all about being um, in a place of aspiration and assertion, mm-hmm. you know, in the present, but in, in, in a direction towards the future. Your sort of spleen stomach is all about regaining the practice of imaging or associative thinking, uh, playful thinking, if you will. Uh, to avoid coming into the experience of worry. Uh, the next one is actually the hardest one. Um, so I'm going to play out an image thing because it's, it's, I don't know, the only way I've ever made this really work. So it's 10,000 years ago. You're walking through the meadows. You come around a corner and there's a bear. And the bear does the secret bear signal for get out of my living room by stomping his front feet against the ground repeatedly. And you're still in his living room because you haven't, you know, <laughs> disappeared behind a rock or a tree. Uh, cause you're actually trying to get somewhere. 
And the bear starts to make the, I really want you to leave my living room by getting up on his back legs and, you know, making all kinds of huffing sounds. And for whatever reason in the cartoon, you still <laughs> believe that standing still or playing dead is a good idea. And the bear runs up and grabs onto your left arm and rips it off and clubs you over the head <clears throat> and eats your left arm. But because it's in some way, a, I don't know, medicine helper bear, it grabs some moss and stucks it into your shoulder so you don't bleed to death. There's a reason why the imagery <laughs> has to happen. <laughs> so now, you know, you, you know, morosely and, you know, sadly stumble your way home. And 10,000 years ago, I have to figure out how to do everything that it takes every day to live your life with respect to what you've lost. Right? So now you've got to tie your moccasins. Oh yeah. Make moccasins. Oh yeah. Start a fire, uh, and everything else that needs to happen, you know, in a pre-industrial situation without your left arm or without what you've lost or without your lover or your recently passed parent or your great job that you just lost. So we, we have this, uh, you know, sense that Sometimes in life, you have to stop doing things that are confusing, things that are new, things that require you to adapt, because you have to adapt to a loss. Now, the closest work in, word in English uh, is acceptance, but that word is inherently passive. It doesn't really sound instinctual. It doesn't sound like something you could grab by the horns with one or both hands and really make go anywhere. So, you know, we have this sense of I'll just sit passively on my couch and, you know, binge watch TV or, you know, binge, you know, beer and popcorn or whatever. And, you know, this, this is the idea of acceptance. You know, you're passive and defeated. Whereas when you look at the idea of an adaptive pause, um, you kind of have to go back through all of the rest of those instincts. I have to have the assertion to move into the grieving process actively. I have to embrace the readiness it's going to take for me to uh, stay resourceful and apply myself. I'm going to need my imaging and imagination to see what my life is going to be like with respect to what I've lost. Because again, the idea of grieving is to... Uh, sort of spend time reflecting and, you know, imaging things out um, with respect to what you've lost because it's no longer around and to avoid getting too many new things because the new things are basically uh, demanding your adaptability. So if the only thing you're going to reserve your adaptability for is the process of grieving. You're going to stay ready and resourceful to the good and bad days that you will feel. You're going to stay assertive with the aspiration to move through the grieving process. Now you're basically functioning on an instinctual level through the fairly challenging grieving process. Is there an associated body part or function that's connected to all of that? Uh, that's your lungs. Your lungs. Uh, so your lungs relate to grieving. So um, the idea of holding one's breath in anticipation for something, you know, don't hold your breath. <laughs> there, there, there's something to that, I think. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a great insight, too, because, I mean, the more we breathe in and breathe out deeply and consciously, you know, we're really inviting what needs to come into us to help us stay well or, you know, heal or recover from something difficult. And as we breathe out, we kind of have to let go of the, the bad feelings, the uh, attachments and other things that inevitably are going to have to change anyway. Well, and I, again, in my, my own experience, I can say that uh, if ever I've been around something that's um, overwhelming, uh, 
if I just remember to breathe, if I remember to do that basic thing, inhale, exhale, by doing something as simple as just breathing, the physiological act of breathing, the basic body function of breathing, um, that takes care of my body, and taking care of my body takes care of me at all levels, including the emotional level. Yeah, and we as began the conversation at the beginning of this, you know, sometimes you have to use your body to get out of your head. Sometimes you have to use your rational mind to deal with the chaos of emotion. You know, and it's it's sort of like uh, just recognizing you, you can't always solve feeling with feeling. You can't always, you know, improve thinking with thinking. I mean, I think, uh, I think I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but when you look at Taoism and Buddhism, their primary resource for, you know, using your head too much is to just meditate, which is the opposite of talking to yourself. You know, so if the, you know, thousands of year old traditions, you know, the, the go-to hack for a talking brain is to not talk, solving thinking problems with thinking is probably not going to get you very far. Hmm. Yeah. Um, it can, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I think it can prepare you for, uh, perhaps the emotional, uh, upheaval of actually changing how you think. After hearing you talk about that again, um, how the, you know, the, the lungs and the gut and the liver and everything, how they're all sort of connected, um, and the sort of uh, instinctual things that sort of rule them, if mm -hmm. you will. Um, I can remember feeling profoundly healthy after I heard you talk about this the first time. And that's, that's what the significance was for me, where I realized that I was no longer wrong. I was no longer, um, you know, going back to the, the last podcast where we're talking about the baffle gab that gets thrown at, um, the individual from Western medicine. We'll use them as the example because they're the, the evil Western medicine. The, what, what's the word you work for that you use for them? The, uh, pharmaceutical medicine. Yeah. Pharmaceutical medicine. You know, throwing some kind of idea at me that sort of puts me in a place in a state of fear and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, behind the eight ball in terms of my health, um, that whole approach dissolved. Once I heard you talk about the emotional intelligence and the instinctual things, because all of a sudden it's like, oh, wait a minute. Um, if I just realize what's going on with my body and actually go, well, hey, um, I guess this is happening because this is how I'm thinking. And I'm thinking this because this is how it's happening. Um, it was just freeing. It was, it was just totally simple. Yeah. I mean, and there's a, I mean, I guess the word shamanism comes to mind in the sense that most of those kind of practices, like they get into Qigong or, you know, um, yoga and other practices where you just wholeheartedly commit to a state of being because, you know, readiness is a state of being, you know, fear is conditionally an emotion, but I think it's sort of the umbrella state for a whole bunch of sub emotions that would happen. Uh, assertion is a state of being aggression is kind of a state of being, but it's also just sort of a behavioral tone, if you will. But anger is a raw emotion. Uh, disappointment is more of a raw emotion. Anxiety, definitely an emotion. Despair, melancholy, very emotional. Whereas the instinctual things, it's like, if I can just find the wherewithal to dig into myself and stay in readiness, to stay in assertion, to stay in association, imagination, to stay in that adaptive pause place where I'm maybe affirming that I just need to wait. And not passively wait, actively wait. The assertion that waiting is going to get you closer to the resolution of grieving than, you know, you know, trying to distract yourself. So there's one more, um, and it relates to the organ of your heart. 
And when the organ of the heart becomes uh, pathological, we usually describe it as sort of a significant kind of overjoy or mania. Right? So the kind of average state of the heart would be around satisfaction. You know, I had my idea, I applied myself to the idea, I used my associative reasoning to figure out how to get the idea to work. I stayed ready throughout the process. Um, I was patient and, and, you know, in a state of kind of waiting or, you know, in an adaptive pause around how aggressively I wanted to see that result, you know, but when eventually the result comes around, I feel satisfied. And I mean, every, you know, thought sequence we have over the space of a minute goes kind of through the same process of, you know, what's going on, you know, what's involved, uh, how do I put it together? What's my plan? Okay, made the decision, acted on my decision and plan, and now I'm satisfied. So there's a sort of sequence in Chinese medicine around being mindful of your mind. So if the pathological emotion is mania, overjoy, overexcitement, things like that, then the instinct would naturally seem to be more around satisfaction and patience. But they describe the actual instinct of the heart as, uh, in Chinese, the word is tsan, and that translates as to a, a kind of, uh, on one side, it's like an appreciative attention, right? So I, I sit in a restaurant with my, you know, partner, and we were sharing a meal and a conversation and the ambiance of the, the restaurant and maybe fancy clothes. And, and the more I spend time appreciating all the nuances of, you know, her behavior and, you know, and the, the laugh, the, you know, the attraction, the... Maybe it's a new person and that's, that's really got my attention. Maybe it's someone I've known for a long time and the familiar is something I really appreciate. But it's the patience we have to actually appreciate what we see. I mean, I've seen that nowadays. <laughs> you know, there's people texting and taking pictures of their food and there's a person on the other side of the table who's kind of, you know, they're in their own little Facebook <clears throat> universe. You know, you're, they're witnessing the, the, the dinner, you know, experience, you know, but we're doing it almost as individuals, like accidentally in, in the same place. So the more we allow ourselves to appreciate that or the puppies or the kittens or the sunsets or the, uh, the beauty of life, the more we actually experience the beauty of life. And that fills the heart with a kind of satisfaction and, and, uh, uh, very similar to your kidneys, a kind of confidence and resourcefulness that, you know, if I actually pay attention to life and, and, and notice what's, you know, and so much of what's life, life is, is beautiful in its own way. Um, that becomes, you know, my day, mm -hmm. a day of appreciation and beauty. Now there's another definition or parallel definition for tsang. So again, we have the appreciative attention side. The other side of that practice is a kind of discernment, which is I can appreciate that my cousin, my friend, my lover, my student, my teacher, whatever, may be full of crap. And I might have to sit here and with discernment, you know, kind of cut out the crap or maybe bring up the crap or whatever it is so that I'm actually appreciating that sometimes there's there's things that are going on that we need to be discerning about, right? So that becomes the instinct of the heart is this place of profound appreciation in the sense of, you know, a little kid in the candy store saying, wow, to the discerning person coming into the candy store trying to figure out the best deal or what's actually like poison and what's actually <laughs> maybe not going to kill you. You know, and that, that is, um, you know, the beginning of how we find love because we would associate, I think most people would associate an instinctual emotion of your heart would be love. But love is sort of a state, whereas appreciation and 
uh, discernment and satisfaction and a certain amount of joy and a certain amount of excitement and enthusiasm and all those things. They're more classic, like distinct emotions, whereas love is like this umbrella term for all of the ways that we actually feel positive moving towards or connecting with something in the world. And, you know, on the other side of the scale is fear, which isn't really by itself an emotion, but it's a state that makes the room for anxiety, apprehension, dread, uh, paranoia, um, other things like that, you know. So it's, it's, I mean, as the Eastern traditions say that, you know, we really have two primary feeling sort of states, love and fear. And, you know, they're always going to be polarizing all of the chaos that happens in the emotional world that may or may not cause our internal organs to get sick based on Chinese medicine's uh, uh, arrangement of how things work. But also between love and fear, we have this deep-rooted instinctual self that's actually here um, kind of chomping at the bit to learn how to be more skillful with these instincts, which the more we actually apply ourselves to that in a shamanic sense of, you know, holding a state of being, holding it as a practice, you know, cultivating it as a skill set, we become so much more authentically aware of ourselves because some of us have profound readiness and very little imagination, mm-hmm. you know, and maybe not much discernment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hopefully they're not... Uh... They're not ones carrying guns or something like that. Probably, absolutely. That's how they end up carrying guns. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I mean, you could take this almost like a board game and, you know, create characters, you know, the sense of role-playing characters who have a lot of a certain instinct and not a lot of a certain other sti- instinct. And with humor, you can just see how that person's going to be playing out their role in, in the game because they have, you know, a profound ability to have an adaptive pause and very little assertion. You know, mm-hmm. So they're wandering around looking at all the cool stuff, trying to figure out how to, you know, come back to their lives, but they're not, you know, and, and really you, getting much momentum. When when you when you talk about this, I mean, I can feel it again. This sort of sense of relief uh, in me, um, and it is exactly how I felt when I first heard you talk. This concept of uh, emotional intelligence. Mm-hmm. Um, it was it was relief because all of a sudden. I felt like I was okay, just as I am. Yeah, and uh, just as we are, each of us is going to have our own ratio uh, and familiarity with these instincts. And the invitation is, if you've now heard all all of this, is to go and sit with yourself in in those five, uh, you know, organ systems or five directions, and just become familiar with how much experience you have with that part of your adaptability and that may excite you to go deeper into the ones you don't have very much familiarity with and maybe by beginning with the ones you have the most experience with so now you're confident in whatever instinct you're choosing to begin with and that um, affirms your ability to move into the instinct you may be less familiar with mm-hmm. and that um, that's free <laughs> that, <laughs> that's the idea yeah it doesn't involve um a whole lot of medicine short of actually um perhaps some sort of self-awareness self-love mm-hmm. um and yeah it's just a, a profound concept to think that uh, i actually have something more here than just a whole bunch of mechanical functions going on you know yeah and there's a book i have coming out um it's called applied meditation and this is one of the applied meditations just to notice who you are as an emotional being and in the sense of reaction and pattern and the conditioning you have from your parents and then get familiar with yourself as an instinctual being around the source of emotion and then become more balanced and skillful as you learn you know 
maybe over a year or two as you get to know yourself, you know, where, where the winds really happen and where the blocks really are. And, uh, I mean, that's all you need to know about it. It's not like you have to go through some big training. You just need to sit down and go, this is me as emotion. This is me as instinct. This is what I've been given by my teachers, lovers, friends, and parents, you know, and this is maybe what I would choose for myself now that I'm more familiar with myself. Sounds like this would be an opportunity for uh, the listener to engage with you further about this. I mean, it's certainly a, a simple conversation. I would like to see some kind of feedback to see how people question you further about this whole idea. Yeah, I mean, if if you're working on something particular and you feel stuck, write a comment and ask ask a question. If you have a huge breakthrough, please write the comment and share your breakthrough because you might, over the years, as people get more access to the podcast, comment uh, may actually inspire someone who's had years of, you know, something stuck in them, you know, that frees them up to, to move, you know, on in their lives in some way. Yeah, wow. Powerful stuff today, Michael. Uh, this is Fusion Health Radio, and this is episode 13, podcast number 13, Emotional Intelligence and Traditional Chinese Medicine. I'm Anthony Santa. I'm Dr. Michael Smith. And um, I think that's a wrap for today. Uh, you can tune in to... Uh, Fusion Health Radio, if, you ha- if you're if you listening on iTunes, great. Um, if not, uh, you might have heard this somewhere via Facebook, via Podbean, via Stitcher, uh, either place. Um, please follow up. Give us some comments. Give us some loving. Yep. Please subscribe to the channel so that we're aware that uh, the direction we're going is the direction people want to go. If you do uh, a little review on any of those, the reviews actually make uh, the machine in the back of both iTunes and Stitcher happy so that they put it up um, closer to the front page when people are searching around health and fitness and stuff yep. like that. Uh, reviews makes uh, iTunes think we're alive <laughs> <laughs> and it actually decides to put that in front of people and uh, your comments let us know that you're alive <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that we're doing the right thing uh, and sharing. That's mm-hmm. one that I don't, I don't think we've actually encouraged people to do before. If you've liked what you've heard today, share it with your friends, share it with your family. And if you have a particular subject you'd like to hear pride apart, you know, with me and Anthony and perhaps uh, another expert we could bring on the show, uh, please give us the, um, that insight and then that uh, request and we'll put it together and do a show on it because that's the reason we're sitting here doing this is to help people help each other get well and be happy. Yep, absolutely. Uh, good talk today, Michael. We'll see you next time. All right. See you next time, Anthony. And uh, for everyone out there, have a great day. Take care of yourselves and take care of each other. You have been listening to Fusion Health Radio. Please add your comments or post a question at Facebook slash Fusion Health Radio.